Good morning. Good morning. It's got some power to it. I like it. If it starts to feedback, we can take it down, but we'll be okay. We are, we are done with our messenger series, so if you have been uh, inundated with minor prophets and you're tired of them, please turn to the book of Malachi. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we're, we're moving on. We have this, this kind of a gap week between uh, when we finish the minor prophets and next week when we launch into Advent. And so um, I, I want to talk today about this idea of silence a little bit. S- silence is a, a really powerful thing. I had a... Um, a professor and a mentor uh, years and years ago who, who gave me this kind of tidbit of psychological communication warfare that I've used every once in a while on people, especially when you're doing like interviewing kind of things. He said, if you, if you ever get an answer from someone you don't like, just stay quiet. Don't respond. So in a conversation, you get an answer, you don't like it, you just... And usually what will happen is that person will either change their answer or they will get remarkably nervous and start to mumble all over themselves, or they will lose track of who they even are in this world. Because silence is something that's really difficult. Silence makes us uncomfortable in a way, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, for, for now, we've, we've been conditioned as a, as a culture and a society to try to, to break and deafen the silence as much as we humanly can. Thankfully, in the modern world, we have all kinds of distractions. There's really not silence anywhere in our lives. Right? Anywhere you go, you can pull out your phone and you can have 16 bajillion hours worth of entertainment. And so silence has become increasingly something that is fleeting. And, and part of why it's so terrifying is that silence forces us to be alone with our thoughts. And for many of us, most of us, if not all of us, that can be a really scary thing. Right? Silence can be something scary. I try this with my kids every once in a while. It's really fun. I found that a silent stare can oftentimes do twice as much good as an angry yell in most scenarios. Right? If you just stare awkward and silently, at the very least, it causes them to pause and reset for just a brief second and, re- and rethink their choices. They'll probably still make them, but, but at least they've thought about it for a second. Silence can be this thing that really kind of hits us. Right? There's another aspect to silence, though, and that's that it can be incredibly formative as well. I remember when I was a kid in middle and high school, we'd go on these youth group retreats, you know, and, and, and on the last night, the speaker would speak whatever they were speaking that night, and there was always this time to contemplate. They'd say, everybody go out in the camp, find, you know, a rock or a tree or something, and just spend 20 minutes in silent prayer. And inevitably, you know, most middle schoolers have no idea what that even means or how to do that, so they all just, you can watch, you know, later on as a youth pastor, I'd watch as there was this hillside filled with middle schoolers in their chosen rock just kind of twiddling their thumbs and wondering what to do for 20 minutes and it seemed like an eternity but a lot of times in the silence there's a formation that happens because when we actually do spend time alone with our thoughts shocker we start to think things and those things that we think and and the way that we process our days and our actions and our thoughts and our choices in the silence can be really helpful and formative and so today uh, we're going to examine the silence a little bit. And, and not just any silence, but what we would call the big silence. And that's what happens in this beautiful time period between Malachi and Luke. If you recall, we finished our, our last series with the, the prophet Malachi. And then there's this beautiful page between the Old and New Testament that just looks like this. It's just blank. There's nothing there. And so today we're going to do something weird. We're going we're gonna to preach from this. <laughs> from the blank, 
and it's kind of an odd thing, but why would we do that, right? Because from the moment the last word of Malachi is uttered in the Old Testament until the moment that the first word of the Gospels, we think Luke might have been the first, is uttered based on content, right? From that time, there is a 400-year period that happens in between in which God doesn't speak, right? And so to, to talk about that period is really tricky because, well, during that 400 years, God doesn't speak. God doesn't say anything. God doesn't speak through any prophets. God doesn't speak in, a, in terms of a historical book that he caused somebody to author. There is no actual biblical writing that occurs in that time in any way, shape, or form. So we, we, we don't really have a turn to the book of, of second you know, break period and what we'll learn about what was going on in that time from God's own hand and word. We don't get that. And so how do we preach from a, a book that doesn't exist? How do we preach a biblical history without a biblical text? Because we don't just have history lessons here. We have sermons here. And so the answer to how we do that comes in a couple different ways. Number one, we we do look at history in some ways because the the scriptures aren't the only way in which the Lord speaks to us. If you've spent any time in nature, you understand that the creation itself is, is formative in some ways. Right? You can encounter God on, on the walking trail or at the beach or on vacation in the mountains, wherever you go. Right? You can sense the Lord's presence and see his goodness in the creation that he's made without ever opening scripture. That's why Roman tells us that the, the truth of God is made plain to them, even if they don't have the word, right? because they have the creation that, that cries out and speaks the truth of God. And so we can look at history and things that actually happened and see God at work within them even though there's not a specific scripture that recounts that portion of history. And so that's number one. We're going to look at history. But the second we're going to do is is rely on some accounts of scripture in the form of prophecy. See, believe it or not, that 400-year period, the things that occur in it do show up in scripture as prophecy long before we ever get there. And we see those prophecies in large parts in the book of Daniel, right? We'll look a little bit at Daniel 7 today. I'm going to encourage you to go read Daniel 11 on your own time because it would, it would be a five-hour sermon and we just don't have the time. But we look in Daniel and we start to see the prophecies God foretelling through Daniel's lips things which will come to pass during those 400 years. And so we do have in some sense a scripture, not of it happening, but of it prophesied well into the future by Daniel. And as you know, Daniel was... Uh, preaching during the captivity in Babylon. He was in Babylon as one of the, those captured, and he was preaching to the people at that time of things to come. And a lot of those things came in the 400 years. So let's start really quickly. I won't have you stand for this, but we're going to look at just the last section of Malachi and then the first section of Luke, because I want us to kind of see the 400-year jump really quick, right? So here's what we have in Malachi. This is the last verse, the last set of verses in Malachi. And I'm not sure that I put the whole thing up, so I'll I'll read a little bit past what's up there. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. This is not on the screen, but I'll keep going. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is the end of the Old Testament. So there's a, there's a gloom of destruction, but there's a, the, an array of hope, right? In those days, I will send a prophet 
I will send one like Elijah who will come and who will, who will essentially bring the people together, right? That's exactly what we hear. He will come and turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. There will be a reconciling that happens when this prophet that I am sending arrives. So that's what we see when we get to the end of the Old Testament. 400 years later, nothing has been said by God for four centuries. Now, first off, can you even imagine how long four centuries are? We don't even have that capacity. Our country is, what, like 250 years old or so? We don't, we don't even have the mental ability to, to gather up what 400 years looks like. And we'll talk about what happened in those 400 years. But we get to the, old, to the New Testament's opening in Luke, and here's what we read from, from Luke. This is uh, Luke verse 1, uh, Luke chapter 1, sorry, starting in verse 8 through 17. And we have Zechariah, who is a priest, who is an actual faithful priest, who's around at this time. He's married to a woman who is barren. She cannot have children, and he is in the temple. Right? That's the opening of, of Luke. It's just we find Zechariah in the temple, and he's just doing pastoral things. It would be like me as your pastor here on a Tuesday morning just sitting in the booth prepping stuff for worship for the next day, getting things ready. He's doing his temple duties as the, the high priest. And after 400 years, God speaks. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn, he listen to this, does this sound familiar, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So here we have the Lord coming to Zechariah. He's just doing his church duties in the midst of the temple, and the Lord appears to him, and he foretells that he will have a child. Right? To, with a wife that's barren. He will have a child. The Lord does things in patterns, right? Jesus is going to come about the same way, but a virgin, not a, not a person who's barren, and a little bit different, but kind of the same concept, right? When, when significant people are, are, are born in cause of the Lord, a lot of times they happen in supernatural ways. Jesus comes about in a supernatural way, and so does John. She can't have children, but there's a promised child. But the language that is used is very much indicative of exactly what we've read in Malachi just a little bit ago. There will come one that I will send the prophet Elijah, and then he says, here will come John in the spirit of Elijah, and he will turn children to their fathers and prepare a way for the Lord. And so 400 years go by between this little sentence in Malachi where he's promised and this massive fulfillment prediction that comes to Zechariah in the midst of the Holy of Holies. God speaks and says, hey, it's been 400 years, it's time. Do you remember the Malachi 4-5? That's happening now. 
And, and by the way, it's your son is the one who's going to be that prophecy fulfilled. Right. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe him, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But it's been 400 years. Right? It's 150 years longer than our country has existed. We can't even fathom what happens in 400 years. Think about back to the year 1623. And just imagine what life is like now versus what life is like in 1623. Those are vastly different circumstances, right? That's kind of the only way that we can get our head around it. Human civilization has evolved just a little bit since 1623, hasn't it? Would you say that we in any way function the same as people did in 1623, other than the fact that we wake up, eat, and go to sleep? Everything else is entirely different. The nations who have risen and fallen are different. The politics of, of life today are different. Right? No one in 1623 was talking about Republicans or Democrats. They wouldn't have known what that even meant. Right? They would have barely understood what politic in general meant. They had a king right? in Britain at that time still. It's a vastly different time. But one of the things that we do when we encounter Scripture is we like to think of the culture as always being the same. Right? Don't you read books like Malachi and books like Luke and think of it as roughly the same time period? You think of it as the same Jewish people and the same culture and the same stuff happening. We don't think about the fact that 400 years have passed and there's a whole lot of evolution that has happened. So much is different in Zechariah's Jerusalem as it was in Malachi's Jerusalem. Right? For one, the language itself is actually different. Right? The Hellenistic influence has come and they're speaking no longer speaking Hebrew, but they're speaking Greek. As a matter of fact, when the, the Greek Empire, which we'll get to, was, was ruling and, and taken over and, and Jerusalem was enveloped inside of it, most of them transferred their language to Greek and they actually rewrote the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. Have you ever heard the phrase Septuagint? That's a really fancy word for the Greek language Old Testament. They translated the whole of God's holy word. All the scrolls were translated into scrolls that were Greek so that the masses who had adopted the new language can read it. Can you imagine the people of Malachi and the people of Zechariah's time? Totally different language. They're not even the same people anymore. Not just from a birth time kind of time frame, but from a culture, from a personhood, from a who they are. The way that worship happens is entirely different. By the time we get to Zechariah, we have these things called synagogues that you might be familiar with. You don't hear the word synagogue in the Old Testament because they don't have them. There's the temple. And all worship with God's people happens through the temple. But by the time we get to Zechariah, we have such a multiplying of the Jewish people in terms of numbers that there are smaller synagogues all over the place. And kind of the worship that the average person engages with throughout their week happens in the synagogues. It's kind of the equivalent of today. Like, we worship here. We all don't fly to Rome every week, do we? You're pretty cool. But we don't do it. Right? Things have radically changed. Everything is different. The landscape of civilization has changed. The politics have changed. And so before we get into this New Testament, we need to take a little bit of time to understand what it was like during those 400 years. Right. So let's take a, a brief ride through that time to get a bit of an understanding of how we got to Zechariah from Malachi. And that way, when we move into Advent, right, we can kind of have a, a sermon history lesson 
that gets us ready to hear about the things that are promised to the people of God when, when John and then eventually Jesus arrives on the scene. Amen? So if you hate history, I'm really sorry. You can walk out and I won't be offended. But if you are a history buff, perhaps like I am, and enjoy some of these things, you might learn a little bit of a thing or two about how the Israelites think and function and what puts them in the scenario they are in. And when you read about things like the Pharisees in the New Testament, how did we even get the Pharisees and all those kinds of things? So when we leave Malachi, what's the empire? Who knows? What empire are the Israelites under in Malachi? Persia, right? Medo-Persian Empire. We have, we have the Persians who came in. They conquered the Babylonians. There's a, a relative peace that happens, right? The Persians are the ones that let them go back to Jerusalem. The temple gets rebuilt. The city gets rebuilt. The wall gets rebuilt. They're kind of functioning as God's people in the right place. Malachi closes with the people that aren't worshiping God well, but they are worshiping God at least kind of in their proper place and time. The priest who is sitting there is a, is a priest in the line of Aaron the way they're supposed to be. It's the right priest, the right place, the right kind of worship. It's idolatrous and it's messed up, but it's at least kind of in the right sphere of mind, right? The, the Persian Empire lasts until about 334 when a little guy named Alexander with a really great subtitle, Alexander the Great, conquers the Persian Empire. Right? Alexander conquers the Persian Empire, and not just that, but most of the known world at the time ended up coming under Alexander the Great. And he actually arrived in Jerusalem, and, and all of the various conquering nations that we hear about, from, from Persia to Alexander the Great, a.k.a. Greece, to, to what comes after, to eventually Rome. All of these things are foretold in Daniel 7 in a really short little way. Let's take a quick look at this. This is from Daniel 7, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to get myself there. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. And the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter, Daniel declared. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. When the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made, no, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Anybody want to take a stab at what Daniel's talking about here? There's four different beasts that, that represent the four different empires that we see happening in the entirety of the 400 years of silence. Right? The first that we read is the beast that comes. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And we know for a fact that those were the symbols of the Babylonian empire. So he's describing in the first beast the empire of Babylon. The second beast that he sees is the Medo-Persian empire. And what does he say about it? Like a bear, it was raised on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth. 
and was told, Arise and devour much flesh. The way that the bear is shaped, it, it was kind of a three different ribs. There was different offshoots. It was the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persia part of that was way bigger. And so that's a description of the Persian Empire. Then we get to Alexander the Great. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. The, the Alexander the Great came in with, with, with a conquering force that was built not on strength but on speed. One of the most impressive feats of human history is the speed with which Alexander the Great was able to conquer what he did. And so he's described as a leopard with a bird with wings on its back, just sweeping through and taking over. And the final empire is the Roman Empire that eventually will come in. And one of the things we see in the description of the third beast is the, the four heads. And we'll, we'll talk about why we have those four heads in just a second. But you see how Daniel actually predicts the successive empires that will rise and fall when we get through those 400 years of silence. And so even though the people don't have God speaking, if they paid attention as one empire comes and another goes, they would have been able to look back at Daniel 7 and say, oh my gosh, look at that. There's different beasts. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Right? There's a lot about Daniel that is really, really hard to understand. This is not one of those things. This is one of those that's just so clear and easy and very little debated, right? And so eventually, Alexander the Great arrives in Jerusalem. He comes to the, to the doors of, of the Jewish people and, you know, ready to conquer, and the priests come out to greet him. We learn about this through, through other historical accounts. And when the priests come out to greet him, they, they flatter him by opening Daniel 7. And they say, look, here's this, this em the empires. We have Babylon, and then there was Medo-Persia, and here's you. You're described as the leopard with, with, with a bird with wings upon your back because of the speed with which. Do you realize, Alexander, that you're, you're actually part of the fulfillment of our God's prophecy? And so Alexander the Great looked upon the people of God favorably and allowed them to continue in peace to exist. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Alexander the Great does is he vows to protect the temple. And so they are able to live underneath the Greek rule with a tremendous amount of peace for quite some time, right? under the protection of one of the greatest conquerors that has ever lived until he dies in 323 B.C. Now, the death of Alexander the Great was, was likely due to illness. There's nothing really significant that happened there. But one of the things that was problematic is that when he died, he had no heirs. He had a wife, and she was pregnant with a son. But he wasn't yet born. And so when he died, there were four generals of Alexander the Great's who they decided what they would do is that they would, they would keep the kingdom, they would watch over it, until that son was born and came of age, and then they would have him rule. That was the plan, right as Alexander the Great dies. And so they start to kind of manage the kingdom. And what naturally happens when you manage a kingdom that is that large is you start to really like being in charge, and eventually power corrupts, and they kill his son and his mother. And the kingdom of, of, of Alexander the Great is split into four different kingdoms. Each of the generals takes a slice of the pie for themselves, and they have four different kingdoms that we see the Greek Empire split into. And that happens around the, the, the early to late 300s, like the, the, the teens of the 300s. 
is when we see all of this start to happen after Alexander dies. And the reason this matters to us is we don't really care about two of the generals, but we care about the other two. The first is the Seleucid Empire, right, that comes, which is north of Israel and much of the territory north of it, Syria, Babylonia, those, those kinds of places. And the other one we care about is the, I'm going to say this really, really, really hard, the Ptolemaic Empire, which is south, Egypt, and right underneath Jerusalem. And those two kingdoms fight a lot. And guess who's in the middle? God's people. They are innocent bystanders in a war between those two factions. And so they, they have a relative peace. They're not part of the, the battle, but they're right at the border of the disputed territory, which continues to be fought over time and time and time again for many, many, many years. And it goes well for a while, just for a little bit, until we get to... Uh, you know, the time frame where we have 204 BC is when a man named Antiochus becomes in charge of the, of the northern kingdom of the Seleucid Empire. And, and when he comes in charge, he hated the Jews more than anyone, I think, in Scripture that we've ever known to hate the Jews. Antiochus had such a disdain for the Jewish people, he wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so around 204 BC... We see such a persecution of the Jewish people, the likes of which we've not really seen before and really rarely, really don't see since. Right? They've suffered in a way they didn't suffer. He actually instituted a mandatory idolatry. So the people of God had to forsake their God and commit acts of idolatry or they would be killed. Right? There's, there's historical accounts during this time of, of women you know, they're not baptizing women, you know, doing, uh, circumcising their children the way they're supposed to, kind of doing the things the Lord asks them. And if they were caught, the babies would be, would be murdered and hung around the women's necks and paraded around town for a while, and then the women would be killed too. Antiochus didn't like the Jews, suffice it to say. And so they struggled immensely, and his, his per, the person that came after him, also named Antiochus, you know, another one continued that trend on, and so the Jews suffered an unbelievable amount in the, two, in the 200s B.C. In that, in that time frame, as those two kind of kingdoms continued to wage war. In around the, the 100 or so time frame, I, I want to say it was like 165 B.C. or so, there was an uprising by the Jews. If you've ever heard the name Judas Maccabeus, we have some texts that are written by him that aren't part of Scripture, but that were historical accounts of that time. Maccabeus led a revolt of the Jews and actually reconquered Jerusalem from the, from the northern kingdom at that time and reinstalled a, a proper priest because Antiochus had installed a, a priest of his own who wasn't really part of God's people. And so the actual temple itself had become desecrated. Antiochus famously had marched into the Holy of Holies and desecrated it on purpose just to stick it to the Jewish people. And so he, they reclaimed their, their area in about 165 BC. And for the, the hundred years or so that followed, there was a constant war happening between that kingdom and God's people. Constant pain, constant death, constant strife. Everything was going terribly until about... 60 or 63 BC, when Rome came in and conquered both kingdoms. And the Roman Empire was more vast than anything we'd really seen before it. And the Roman Empire is what's in charge whenever we get to the New Testament. And so by 63 BC, just 63 years before Christ is born, we, we finally see the empire come into power that will be in power as we read 
the stories of Advent. Right? The Romans are in power. And Pompey comes in in 63, he conquers Jerusalem, and he again desecrates the temple. Right? In 47 BC, Caesar made a man named Antipar the procurator over the area of Judea. So when we read about procurators and, and things like that in the New Testament, right, there was a person that was in charge of Judea, and he made his two kids kings of Galilee and of Judea. And one of his kids' names you might recognize as Herod. And Herod the Great was the king during the time of Jesus. Right? So that's how we get from Malachi. There are four empires that arise and fall. Can you even imagine a history where the empire of the United States eventually falls to another and then another and then another? By the time we get here, they are not the same people. They're entirely different. Right? So King Herod rules. That's what happens in terms of nations, right? So when John comes on the scene, Herod is king. Uh, the priesthood of Israel was in the line of Aaron at that time, uh, and the appointees were really politically motivated, right? Herod started to just put people in the office of high priests that were kind of necessary politically. It's kind of like today, there's, you know, when a president comes into office, there are certain cabinet positions that are definitely political appointments on both sides of the aisle. They're like, how did they get the job? You know, they helped drum up, you know, money and whatever. And so you, you get, you know, secretary of, you know, the interior or whatever. Um, that, that's happening there. He gives the high priesthood of God's people to a political beneficial appointee. And that's who's running the, the church. And so the, the people of God's faith is kind of destroyed from within by someone who Herod has appointed, right? There's also some political factions that start to arise at that time that you'll find familiar that are really helpful to know. The first is the Sadducees. You'll read about the Sadducees encountering with Jesus at all times. The Sadducees were actually the liberal political party in, in, in biblical times during the time of Jesus. They were the ones who were like, well, the Torah is the law and we should keep it at its most basic form, but God really isn't to be involved in the governing affairs of the everyday, right? They were very much Greeks in culture and said, you know, well, the law of the Lord is good. We should keep the Ten Commandments. Do you know anybody like that today who's like, their whole definition of Christianity is to like, just keep the Ten Commandments? Right? There's really nothing else to it. Right? That's kind of the Sadducees. They were, in every other way, they would succumb to culture. They were just kind of a straight, you know, yeah, the basic law will keep, but everything else kind of gets to go. Then you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the, maybe today, the far right in a way, so to say. They were the, the religious zealots who didn't just keep the law, but built up all kinds of extra laws around it. They hated the Sadducees. Those two did not like each other. They worked together when it needed to happen for the sake of being beneficial, but they did not like each other. Right? And all of these parties come about as a result of Rome's thumb coming on God's people. Their worship was being destroyed. The Sadducees said, well, let's just ride it out. We'll keep the law and we'll just go along, just let it happen, you know. Invite them in. If we're just kind, everything will go well. The Pharisees were the ones that were the hardliners that said, no, we have to protect this at all costs, and we have to protect it at the cost of things like love and care and kindness of even our own people. And we have to protect this law by building 60 laws around it to make sure that no one ever breaks anything coming close to this law. And they became so entrenched with themselves and so it's kind of evil and just, just everything has to be kept perfectly, right? A Pharisee could only walk so many steps 
If they were stuck somewhere during the Sabbath, you know, they weren't actually able to, to continue on. Like there was a crazy regimen to the Pharisees because their reaction was against the Roman influence. They wanted to preserve at all costs, even the cost of love and care of God's people. Right? Then we have the, the Sanhedrin. They're kind of the judges, the courts in, such, in, in a way, so to speak. They're the judiciary. Um, Rome really liked to conquer, but then do a laissez-faire approach. Right? So Rome conquered a territory, but kind of let it govern itself so long as they paid homage to Caesar and taxes. And so the, the Sanhedrin were the ones who really would settle a lot of the disputes. They're kind of the magistrates of that time. But do you see how these, these political parties, all these things that you read about when we get to the New Testament, they all come out of the development of the rise and falls of all these empires. Right? You look at like, well, how can the Pharisees be the way they are? Well, they're reacting against something. How can the Sanhedrin think the way they do and act the way they do? Well, they're reacting against history, against four centuries of human history that brought them to where they are. Of course, it's not going to look the way it did in Malachi's time. It's going to be different. They're going to have their own little things. The Sanhedrin are going to rule and judge in certain ways. And when the Messiah comes, they're going to have trouble recognizing him because of how they've developed as a people at that time. All of these things that we will look at in the coming weeks start to make a whole lot more sense when you understand how things ebbed and flowed in those 400 years. From a worship standpoint, the temple had been important, but we moved, like I said, to the, the synagogues, right? Those leading worship were these Roman appointees everywhere. You would walk in a church and you'd have worship led by a person who wasn't even a Jew, wasn't even a follower of the Lord. They were just doing their, you know, appointed by somebody. Or they were Jewish, but sold out to the Roman government. You see some of these in the New Testament, like Matthew, who was a tax collector, he was a Jewish person who was sold out to the Roman government. And so the Romans hated him because he was Jewish, and the Jews hated him because he was a sellout and a, and a liar and a cheat. Right? All of the landscape of Jesus' time is created by what happens in those 400 years. And we have to understand it to get to the point of the beginning of the four Gospels. Right? And today we're, we're looking at Luke. Now we recount this. Because throughout all of this time, when all these things were happening, God was silent, but God was clearly working. Just because God doesn't speak doesn't mean that God doesn't move. Right? Those empires rising and falling were orchestrated by the Lord. And we know that because as we looked at, Daniel prophesies their rise and their fall in the right order. Right? God was doing that in those 400 years. He was moving even though he wasn't speaking. I would highly recommend that you go home today and read Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 recounts, prophesies, doesn't recount it, prophesies the history of the, the, that northern and southern Greek empire that Israel is between, the battles that take place between it in, in a level of detail that you can't even fathom. Knowing, knowing what you know now, knowing that there was those two kingdoms of, of the Greek offshoot that fought each other, go home today and read Daniel 11, and you will see 130-plus prophecies which come to pass during that time period in those 400 years. We don't have time to cover 130 of them, or we'll be here forever. Unless anybody would like to stay after. 
Maybe stay here, bring your lunch in here, and we'll talk about all the 130-some prophecies until we're all tired and ready to fall asleep. But, but the Lord orchestrated those 400 years. And I think it's really important that we understand this. Sometimes God's silence is required for people to really listen. Right? We see a, a glimpse of this at the beginning of that John the Baptist story. When the angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah in the temple and tells him that he's going to have a son named John, Zechariah doesn't believe. Take a look at what God does as a consequence. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. So we see that... Zechariah doesn't believe. There you go. Right? So God makes him mute, unable to speak, so that he has to just listen. For the entirety of his wife's pregnancy, he's unable to speak. Wives, any one of you who have gone through pregnancy, anybody here maybe wish that your husband could like not say anything for nine months? Pretty great, wouldn't it? Right? Just, just be quiet for the, for, the, for the time while I'm doing this thing that you don't even begin to understand that I'm doing. But he was mute until the birth of John the Baptist. And it forced him to, to sit back, to, to not be able to speak, to not be able to interact, to, to listen, to prepare himself. And by the time John the Baptist arrives on the scene, right, he was far more receptive to what the Lord had for him and his family. And as we know, John the Baptist comes and prepares the way for the Lord. He is the prophesied prophet in the spirit of Elijah to bring the people back to prepare them and to announce the coming of the Messiah, right? God is never really silent. He's never unmoving. He's never resting. Just because God isn't speaking to you, just because you perceive the Lord to be distant does not mean that he is. Usually with God, that which you perceive is not that which you receive from him. Right? A lot of times I hear people, I just, yeah, I just don't hear the Lord anymore. I don't feel like he's close to me or I'm close to him. He's not really speaking to me. I read his word and it doesn't seem to be really saying anything. And, and we perceive that as a, as a godly distance rather than understanding that God's never distant. He's never unmoving, never wavering, never resting. He's always active and living and breathing. God is still working, and that's what those 400 years are really about, right? God had tried to speak to the people in all kinds of ways. He spoke to them directly. He spoke to them through through judges. He spoke to them through kings. He spoke to them through prophets, and no matter what the Lord did, the people continued to rebel and not draw close to him, and so God got quiet and got to work for 400 years, and when he finally was ready to speak again, guess who shows up? Jesus shows up. Because God was working. When you don't hear the Lord, 
you can trust and know that he is at work even to this day. Because guess what? We are in a much larger period of, so to say, silence, are we not? We're on the other end of Jesus, and we're awaiting his second coming, and we are in a silence, right? One of the few times that we get to look at Jewish history and say we kind of know what it feels like is, is in this. We're sitting in a period of silence ourselves. We're sitting in this already but not yet time frame where we're waiting for God to, to do something. The Lord has come. We celebrate Jesus. We get together in a few weeks of Christmas, and we say Jesus is born, and then we ask ourselves, well, what does that even really mean? Is life really different after the birth of Christ? What is it that we're hoping for? And, and God promises us a return, a second coming that we will get to experience someday, but we're waiting in this period of silence. And a lot of times while we wait and around us empires rise and fall and politics come and go, we ask ourselves, well, God, where are you? I haven't heard from you in decades, centuries. Look at what's happening in the world. Where are you? Where have you been? What are you doing? And just like then, trust me, God is at work and he will come again. And when he does, we better be ready. There will come a time when God says, everybody listen up, I am ready to speak now. Behold, here comes Jesus, not as a, as a human and a frail baby this time, but as a conqueror and a king. And every moment we spend preparing our hearts and minds during the season of Advent is with that promise in mind. And we know that even when it feels like God is distant and quiet, he is at work, working towards those last days, that final battle, when all pain and all sorrow and all sin and all strife are removed, and we get to just be with him and enjoy his creation and our God next to us forever and ever. Embrace the silence. When God doesn't speak, seek him out. Don't get mad and wonder where he is. Seek his face. Look through scripture. Do what God calls you to do and trust that he's at work. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't just create and send the world spinning, but that you are in our midst. That you are a God who is invested in your people, that loves your people, that cares about your people and that wants to use them as part of the development of your story of redemption. Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of that story. We pray for patience. Just as the Israelites walked through centuries of silence, we seem to be in that kind of a time now. And Lord, we pray that you might speak again soon. We long for it. We want to hear from you. We're people in worship and awe waiting for you to do the next thing that you promised to do. Lord, we're impatient, and so give us a measure of your patience. We forget, so give us a spirit of remembrance. We're frail, so give us a spirit of strength. We're rebellious, so give us a spirit of obedience. Keep us. Keep us in your truth, in your gospel, in your promises, and never let us forget and wonder where you are, but rather let us trust where you're going and what you're doing, because you, by the very nature, are good. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said,